Welcome to the latest episode of Data Unchained. I'm your host, Molly Presley. So what is this podcast all about? If you think about how our world is evolving, the paradigm for data access has changed. We used to think of it as something you would store, put away, and really silo, often from each other or from other organizations. And a lot of those models have changed. In today's decentralized world, getting data to remote workers, to distributed applications across multiple regions in the cloud is necessary, but it's also a challenge. Data Unchained digs into the challenges as well as the solutions to make data an asset as a global resource. Today's guest is going to bring some really interesting perspectives to this conversation. I'd like to welcome Lauren Maffeo. Um, Lauren, thank you for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And Lauren has a couple of really interesting um, paths in her career. One is as an author. She has published a book called Designing Data Governance from the Ground Up. And she's also a senior service designer for Steampunk and has been in the technology industry for quite some time. Lauren, maybe as we get started, before we talk about work, maybe tell us a little bit about you and kind of what, you know, how you got to where you did today as um, a technologist, as an author, and some of your personal life. Sure. I'd love that because I, when I was in graduate school, you know, 11, 12 years ago, never saw myself working in technology. And I certainly didn't see myself writing a book on data governance. I didn't know what that was and uh, wouldn't have cared if I did. Uh, (laughs) I was very focused in school on being a journalist and having a career in media. I was especially interested in broadcasting. And so when I was in college and even in graduate school, all of my internships were oriented around working in various news organizations from digital media online to doing live broadcasting for a radio station in Washington, D.C., where I went to college and live now. And so I was very focused on that. And when I graduated from graduate school, I was really eager to get clips and build my portfolio as a journalist. And I got networked into London's, at the time, small but rapidly growing tech scene. I went to graduate school in London, so I made connections there and started to do freelance reporting for digital news outlets like The Next Web and The Guardian, focusing on tech. And that is how I got into the sector. I realized that it was more than just a beat I got to cover. I found it interesting, enjoyable. I enjoyed learning about how small companies are built. And eventually, I transitioned to working in the tech sector myself. I've started by going into content marketing. I think that's a natural progression for many people with a journalism background. And eventually, I learned about uh, systems design, service design, user research. And I realized that that avenue would allow me to pursue a lot of the tasks that I really enjoyed as a journalist, talking to people, figuring out problems, getting to articulate those problems to different audiences. And so that's really how I came to my current role as a service designer. And uh, as you know, I am also an author and I've always loved to write. So getting to publish my first book this year was really exciting. And when I'm not working, I try to travel as much as time and money allow. Uh, I have been 
been uh, many new places this year. I'm I I've been saying that 2023 is my revenge travel year after COVID. Uh, so I've been going anywhere and everywhere when I get the opportunity, and I'll be going to North Macedonia in two weeks, which will be my first trip to that corner of the world. So I'm looking forward to that, and I love to unplug while traveling in between all of the work that I do. So you. We'll have to meet at some point uh, one of my peers at Hammerspace, a gentleman named Floyd Christofferson. He also made it in tech from a journalism background, and he was a war journalist. He covered wars in Africa following nomadic tribes and has gone all across Africa with these warring tribes that are nomadic and moving around and you know has an interesting passion for travel but he's also a very detailed technologist at Hammerspace and very well known in our space so somebody you must meet at wow. some point interesting that is, interesting synergies yes that is wild i i never did anything remotely that daring as a as a journalist i was already in the the digital news era where i was working behind a screen doing all of my interviews behind a screen uh, so doing that on the field ethnographic reporting and and research i think that's something that's actually been lost during covid because as a designer uh, especially if you're designing an in-person experience a big part of that is is observation. It's going where your users are, watching them engage in the particular steps that they need to fulfill to do a certain task in person. Uh, service design is actually very common in retail because service designers will be brought in for on behalf of a retailer and they'll look at the flow of traffic through a store. They'll try to re-optimize it for different goals. And that on-the-ground experience with users is really important. I think because I specialize in designing digital products and services, it's less obvious of a fit for what I do today. But that whole aspect of getting out in the field and talking to people is something I loved about journalism, and it's something I have missed during COVID. So at some point, I do hope that I'll be able to do more ethnographic research, more contextual inquiry in person as we hopefully move beyond the worst of COVID, knock on wood. Absolutely. Goes well with your passion for travel. So let's talk about data governance. Most people would maybe consider data governance less exciting than travel and journalism. Um, and, I, you know, as I say that a little tongue in cheek, but even when we were meeting each other in Game Ray for this show, we were talking about, you know, is data governance something people like, they want to do? Is it a bad word? Maybe just tell me a little bit about where that um, space is and why you called the book what you did and how important is it right now? Those are all fantastic questions, and I think the essence of where we are in recent years can be summed up by the pitch that I made to my publisher when I was first pitching the idea for this book. I published it through the Pragmatic Programmers, which is a a niche tech publisher that publishes how-to books that are very tactical on different subjects in tech, everything from learning Rust to Elixir to uh, technical program management. They get very in the weeds about specific topics, and that's who they serve. And I remember when I pitched this idea for a book on data governance, the editor and the the managing editor said, well, we can pitch this idea to our editorial committee, uh, but I don't know that anybody's going to be interested in reading this. And uh, if any listeners out there are thinking of publishing a book, 
That is not an uncommon thing to hear. I would actually say you need to get ready to hear that quite a lot. I am lucky that I ended up getting a deal with this publisher to publish that exact book because many times you have to get rejected by several publishers in order to hear a yes. So just because a publisher says that does not mean that all is lost. And <laughs> it, and I think that was a somewhat accurate assessment of where the the market is and the industry is when we talk about data governance. Uh, it is not only is it not really done today to the degree that it should be, it is almost a dirty word in many circles among practitioners. I was talking as a guest on Data Architecture Online, which was an online summit hosted by Dataversity this month, and the keynote host, uh, I was part of the keynote, and the host said, it's almost like, you know, when developers say, don't bother me with requirements, I'm coding. It's, I mean, it, I feel like data is like that to an extreme. I mean, there's this real culture of tinkering in tech and anything that disrupts your time to production or the amount of code you can push is viewed as with real suspicion and viewed as a detriment rather than a benefit. And I think we, this year, there, with the explosion of, of generative AI in the public sphere, with ChatGPT getting as popular as it did, I think there is much more of an acknowledgement now that data governance is essential. Having said that, it doesn't mean that people always want to talk about it. It certainly doesn't mean that everybody wants to do it. And so I do think that that's a bit of a blocker. And when it comes to the name of the book, I framed it as designing data governance because I really do believe as a systems and service designer that data governance is not a technical problem. It's a cultural challenge to be solved in the context of a much larger digital transformation. That word is such jargon now, but but I can't think of a better explanation for it because it fundamentally has to be designed into the the essence of what your business is doing. If you try to tack it on at the end, it's just not going to work. And I think when people frame data governance as pure compliance or pure technology, neither of those is is true. Legal and technology absolutely play their roles, but it really is a cultural issue to design for. And if you do approach it from that angle, I think you'll be much more successful because you'll be more well-planned and prepped for the challenges that you might encounter. Do you feel that, you know, you said that something along the lines of nobody wants to do governance, but now that AI and some of the stories of things that have happened with, you know, internal developer notes gain out into the public with ChatGPT and those types of things, do you think it will become something where it, it becomes a bit more in vogue or something that's seen more urgently than even just a year ago? I absolutely do. And when I'm being, you know, self-deprecating about the book, I, I joke that people might not want to read my book, but they'll have to read my book at some point <laughs> uh, because they because I do think it, it will very quickly become viewed as essential and no longer a nice to have. I have had C-suite level chief data officers say things to the effect of, we'll do data governance after deployment, or we will do data governance in the next contract after we decide what to automate. And the fact that there are C-level data leaders in very large organizations who speak this way tells me that the appetite for it is is still not where it should be. I 
do think that humans are inherently reactive. Uh, we're not, we're, we're primed to change because it's necessary for survival, both ours and the survival of businesses. Uh, businesses either have to evolve with the times or they die. Uh, but having said that, it typically takes something pretty big and sometimes something catastrophic in order to really move that change forward. So we talk about data governance and how the volume of data that is produced and ingested keeps increasing while the number of organizations that say they're data-driven keeps decreasing. So there's a huge imbalance there. And I think what really is going to tip the scales to a more even keel is that I think there is going to be eventually a data breach on such a mass scale that is so egregious that nobody can ignore it anymore. We saw this happen with cybersecurity just in the last few years. I went to the Open Source Summit in Vancouver five years ago. I just went back to the same exact conference again in Vancouver this year. And the Linux Foundation, which hosts the conference, has the open, they now have OpenSSF, which is a project, an open source project purely devoted to open source security, securing supply chains, all of that. I remember very vividly, not too long ago, a few years ago, when the open source community did not want to talk about security. They did not want to acknowledge that it was a massive problem. They didn't, they basically would put their hands over their ears if it was brought up. And in the last two, three years, basically in conjunction with COVID, we have seen the number of attempted cybersecurity breaches skyrocket. You look at things like the Colonial Pipeline hacking, which affect things like gas prices. It ha that has a very tangible, real effect on many people. And organizations can no longer ignore it. Open source cannot no longer ignore it. I do think the same thing is going to happen with data and that five years from now, we will be having a different conversation about governance because it will no longer be, you know, screaming at the wall. It will be people who need that information, even if they don't necessarily want to do it. It will no longer be an option to ignore it. I liked the analogy that you use of do you, as a product manager, design your roadmap before or after you launch the product. And I think that's an analogy you use compared to the six steps of preparing for data governance. And so maybe talk a little bit about if those who are listening are thinking, oh, gosh, maybe I do need to focus on this, or maybe it's already very urgent for them, which are, wherever they're coming from. Um, you, I, you have written the book to be very um, methodical in a way you can approach this topic. Um, what are the six steps? Yep. I think regardless of your organization's size, regardless of your tech stack, whatever, regardless of how many people you have to be stewards of your data, I think there, I wrote this book because I want it to be the prelude to any other additional resources on data governance you might need because I really fundamentally believe that if these six steps are in place, you are well positioned to find the right technology, find the right people to execute data governance for the long haul. And so the first step is finding a data framework that works for your organization and that you find that framework by getting really clear on what your or your company's mission statement is, why you exist, why you're in business, and then connecting that to a more succinct statement about how you want to use data to fulfill that mission. It sounds very granular and basic to a lot of folks, but the reality is I think that's a huge reason why we're seeing so many of these issues today with data. 
data in an organization is too divorced from the actual organization and why it exists. And if you look at roles, like you and I have our roles at our respective companies, we're fulfilling a very specific purpose as part of this bigger reason why the company exists. And even if you're even if you're an ice cream shop, even if you're a consulting firm, the whole point is that the company exists for a reason. You're going to use data, particular types of data for particular reasons. And you can find a pre-existing framework that works for your organization once you are very clear on what you need the company to do and what role data plays in fulfilling it. And then the next step is to select data stewards. Uh, these are people who exist in your organization already. They're, they're leaders in the company and they have really specific domain expertise. These people are not necessarily VP or senior director level, although they can be, but sometimes they're people who have really niche expertise about particular types of data. So you might have a database filled with different data types and then you might have statisticians managing those data, that those data collections. And those statisticians could be really great respective data stewards. Uh, so these are people who are looped into conversations about data. They are people who are already responsible for making business decisions related to that data. And because they have more context about it, they're best positioned to steward it and make rules about who can access it, who can, uh, what certain definitions are, things like that. Once you've selected your stewards, you can put together a data governance council. This is a, a governing body that unites uh, to share updates on the data per domain and make key decisions about things like approving new tools, uh, agreeing on which projects you're going to prioritize, making decisions and having conversations about access control or new security implementations. And the idea is to bring all of these stewards to the same table, give them all a seat at the table and give them a forum to discuss these in a cohesive manner. Uh, once you've agreed on an initial project that you want to prioritize that is tied back to the business goals, you want to write a data roadmap for implementing that project. And this, this is where the product management analogy comes in. There's a big movement in the data space to manage data like a product rather than as a service that is managed in a top-down way. And so that's where the product management analogies come in. And then you want to practice governance-driven development by enabling the data governance standards, the quality assurance, all of that into your environment when you're preparing the data for release. So I always say that data governance should not be a set of documents that is divorced from your in environments, it, technically, if it is something has gone wrong there. The governance is there to guide what you do in development and production. And so the last chapter is, is about executing that, what that looks like. And then finally, the last step is to manage that data consistently in production. Um, as you mentioned, going back to the product management analogy, pro data, especially when we talk about machine learning and we talk about AI, these algorithms and systems are going to constantly be ingesting new data. It doesn't stop with one release. And so if you need a holistic strategy to govern that data throughout the product life cycle, and that's why the data as a product analogy, I do think is more apt and more relevant to data today. You know, I think that as you think about that data is not going to slow down, you know, we've been talking as an industry 
and, you know, in the tech space for ever, it seems like about year over year growth, double, triple, more data this year than since the generation, the, since man came onto earth, you know, all these things that data growth is inevitable for sure. And controlling what's fed into these AI engines, I think is one of the foundational things that organizations are thinking about of they want to use a nice AI engine to get output, but they want to control which data gets in there. Have you seen the kinds of tools or how people are starting to think about which data gets out into AI or does that, is AI just another application and the governance that they would set up isn't really specific to AI? I do see vendors and to an extent clients being more holistic about governance. And the thing that I try to stress is that, for instance, there are a lot of conversations in the industry about AI ethics, and that encompasses everything from transparency about which data is used to train a system. It can go into the algorithmic weight of each variable in the training process, because that also has a big impact on output. Um, and so, but when we talk about ethics, I, I always stress that data, data governance is ethics, as an example. It is transparency. It is education. It is all of those things. And that's why the framework is really important because I use in the book an example of a framework from Gartner on data governance implementation. And the goal is to stress that data governance underpins all of these things. And so I think when we look holistically at how data is managed, we are seeing tools, you know, like from AWS, uh, when I think, for instance, of SageMaker, I know that SageMaker is a tool which is marketed as being as allowing any user to build an algorithm with the data that they choose in order to get the output they desire. I have, I admittedly have not gotten to use it myself. And part of that is because to my knowledge, there's no free trial. So I was not able to use it personally, but I do know that clients sometimes will look for it. And I know that that's a tool that is thinking about how to not just make machine learning more accessible to make AI more accessible, but to embed things like transparency into the models. Uh, I also know that you look at tools like Informatica, which are designed to give more context to a data dictionary, to give more visibility into which data is used in which algorithms. So I do see more, more tools coming to market, which address governance holistically. I do also think that at this moment, a lot of that technology is quite expensive, and I I think the price point is going to come down. I think there will be more vendors in the future who are in this space, but at the moment, having the budget to access these types of tools in the first place could be a blocker, and that's before you even assess which tool really is the right fit for your needs. Do you see this, you know, the idea of ransomware was not all that popular until there was some very visible, very expensive ransomware attacks. And then all of a sudden became a must have to have a ransomware strategy and tooling and everything in place. Do you think data, this, this space is going to follow something along those lines that something very visible will happen. It'll become a mandate instead of a nice to have. I mean, data governance has been around for a while, but is it going to taste something very public like that? for folks to really assign the budget? I do think that it's due to the reactive nature of people in general, it is going to take something large and mass scale and 
uh, catastrophic might be overstating it, but it, but the the consequences of it are going to be so great that that companies can no longer ignore it. And yes, I do I do see that being in parallel. I think broadly speaking over the last decade as the volume of data has grown people have kind of had carte blanche to to play with it and do whatever they want with it somewhat free of consequences and the consequences of that are well documented now we know very clearly that algorithms are not unbiased they reflect the whatever data they're trained on we know that the uh, volume of data is growing and not going anywhere and so i do think there is going to be much more of a demand for data governance knowledge and systems uh, than there was before you are you mentioned correctly there are people looking into it now there are consultancy services that that manage data governance for their clients i would but again i when i look at the appetite for these things it's still not there to the degree that it should be. And I do think that there needs to be a tipping point, unfortunately, for people to really get the message regarding how crucial this is. So for those who are on this journey, whichever phase they're in, are there dashboards? If you were a CEO, how would you know how your company is doing, um, where they're at risk? How, how does people kind of, how does somebody see the status of their organization's strategy? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Part of what I talk about in chapter four before you write the roadmap is doing a really honest deep dive into the state of data governance or not in your organization. And it's really important to be honest here, which I need to stress because very often the results are not what people want. Uh, Obviously, this isn't this isn't the results of something like this aren't going to look good for a lot of organizations. And so I think they're hesitant to do the work. And that's something that I see with organizations in general is this idea that it's not just about designing data governance from scratch. The big blocker I see is people saying they know they need data governance, but then the thought of not only doing all that work to stand it up, but then retroactively applying those standards you've come up with to all of the data in their organization, that's very overwhelming for people and understandably so. It feels at face value like too much. And so I I do understand that hesitation. When you think about visibility, I think it's that is really important. I think that holistic snapshot of what which data is where, who owns it, all of that's been missing from the data lifecycle overall. Uh, and so you have things like dashboards for reporting as an example and and you know self-service BI, so to speak business intelligence tools like Google Analytics, those have been around for a while now. And I think many listeners are probably familiar with them. But when you think about the overall data environment, and you're looking at your cloud architecture, and at the algorithms within it, you're looking at a data lake and seeing where that is, that's where I think it gets complicated. Because then that goes into not just what am I using today, what integrations do I need? So if I'm using, you know, Snowflake, but there are certain things I need that Snowflake doesn't provide, which tools integrate with Snowflake? Um, do I need to go from an on-premise server to a cloud environment? Um, the, this is where it gets complicated, but this is this is an 
essence, the work of a CIO. It's the essence of a CTO, depending on the organization. It's the it, it's the CDO's job. And so I think if you start, though, with that that goal you said, if you're if the goal really is I need a real time snapshot of not only which data I have, but who is managing it, where it is, which data is being masked correctly versus which is not, that's not only really important, because if you find issues, you need to roll the model back from the time prior to seeing bias or whatever the issue is. So you need that snapshot so that you don't have to take the model out of production to begin with. But it also says that that's the goal. And I think part of the issue has been that has not really been a goal to the degree that it should have. People didn't kind of care as much about what the what the live look is at all of their data. And I think that also speaks to the lack of metrics. Uh, again, I have really seen this culture of of tinkering and in production and this this ethos that having a lot of data is valuable on its own. And that's really not true at all. If you're not using the right data to solve the right problem and that data is not fit for use in terms of quality, it really has no value at all. If anything, it's a risk because then you're in possession of data that you might not need or or you shouldn't have. And then that creates challenges for your business. Yeah, absolutely. You were touching on a few topics that I've had several conversations recently about how the last data cycle really was focused on database data, structured data, business intelligence. And a lot of these challenges came up even then, but the data was actually fairly contained in a database or on a server. Now, where we have this next data cycle where data is distributed in a lot of places, it's being generated off devices and cars and you know, in clouds and data centers all over the place, and that's probably where the next big set of insights are coming from, is this unstructured data from everywhere. You, you've used the term all my data several times, and you think about how do we conquer these issues when you're talking about all the data. It, it definitely is the opportunity, and it's exciting to imagine what you can do with that, but it's much, much harder. And you know, I think you're touching on, we've just scratched the sur surface with BI and you know the database data on how to address this. And we're going to have to expand that out to all the data now too. Absolutely. So one of the conversations I had at the Open Source Summit in Vancouver this year was with someone who said, uh, we were talking about data mesh architecture, and which is, that's a whole other podcast. And you talk, uh, that's <laughs> where you manage data as mm -hmm. domains, uh, according to, or you manage them as products according to domains in the same uh, architecture, but they have their own data lakes. And someone was saying, I don't, you know, he's like, I don't understand why you can't just use an on-premise server for things like this. And I I mean, in response, what I would say is that it really depends on two things. I mean, I first of all, I don't think something like Data Mesh is necessarily the right fit for every organization, even if I do think there's a lot of merit to the data as product mindset. But what I would say to somebody who is questioning why do we need to be thinking about all of these new architecture types and tools, why doesn't what I have work? First of all, that's not a new attitude. I work with I've worked with clients for years who say, 
why do I need to automate this five-day process into two hours? I do it in an Excel spreadsheet and that's fine. I've worked with many clients who have an attitude similar to that. This is no different. It's just with data. And the in, in response to that, Guy, I would say it, the questions I have are how much data do you have and what data type is it? Because if it's structured data and it's under a certain volume, you probably can use something more simple to manage it. But the reality is, as you said, most of the data produced today is unstructured. That is, if if uh, it is harder to get insights from that data, but I think that's really where the biggest opportunity is. Uh, as you said, it's much more complicated. And if you are going to manage it in a cohesive way, if you're going to vet it for quality, if you're going to assign stewards to it uh, to manage that quality, that does require more of a strategy. You can't just put it all in a warehouse and then say that you're done. Uh, That approach, I would argue, never really worked to begin with. It really doesn't work when you add semi-structured and unstructured data to it. So as folks are listening to this show and thinking through for their own organization, what's next? Um, are there tools out there? I mean, we've talked about some of the frameworks and some of the titles that potentially are happen- are within the organization. Um, are there other places? Are there places that you go to learn or organizations they can pull in as consultants? Kind of, How would you help them as they're pursuing different ways to continue on their journey of learning and maybe gain some help? Yeah. Well, I would be remiss. I do work for Steampunk, as you said, and we do have what we call a data exploitation practice where we do sometimes guide clients through this data governance journey. uh, And we're doing it for very large uh, organizations, often at the federal level. So that's something that we do help clients with. In terms of resources for myself, I've really gotten a lot out of the Towards Data Science blog. So that is a blog publishing insights from data leaders on various topics, many of which related to relate to governance. Uh, these are engineering leaders at Google, Microsoft, big, big tech firms that have a lot of experience. And so I think that's a great resource for people to learn. Uh, and then I do hope also that people would read the, read the book I wrote if they're interested in learning more about how to get started. It's, and that the, you asked about the title of the book earlier. My pitch for a title was just designing data governance and my editor added from the ground up. And I was talking to my mom and my cousin before the book was published and said, yeah, the, I don't, I'm not sure about the, this new title that my editor wanted to add on from the ground up. And I'm not sure how I feel about it. They both immediately said, I think that's really valuable because I would never pick up a book called Designing Data Governance because it would suggest that I need to know too much before diving in. But from the ground up implies that someone can learn something from it, even without a background in the subject. And so I do hope that that is true. Uh, and And I hope that if folks do want to learn more about what we discussed today, that they would consider uh, looking up the book. So Lauren, I where can you find the book? Is it on Amazon? Is it available as a digital copy? All those types of things. Give us a little bit more detail on where folks can find this if we've piqued their curiosity. 
Uh, so the answers are yes and yes. So it is available on Amazon, uh, barnesandnoble.bn.com, Barnes and Noble's website, Target. Uh, it is also available for order through independent booksellers. So if you have an independent bookseller near you, uh, you can get it there. You can also go directly to the publisher. You can go to pragprog.com. That's P-R-A-G-P-R-O-G.com. And the book is called Designing Data Governance from the Ground Up. You can order a print copy from the publisher. You can also order a e-copy for 35% off. So you can use the code DATAGOV23, all caps, and you should be able to get 35% off the book if you are interested in checking it out. I'm going to go download a copy. I won't use the code. I want to give you the full (laughs) benefit of being a guest on the show. Um, But seriously, as not just the podcast host, but thinking about the number of organizations I speak to that are trying to do what this podcast says, unchain their data and make it a global resource. That's the fun part. And we want to make sure that you're all staying safe while you're doing it. So um, I'm going to definitely get some copies and share them around with our technical team as well at Hammerspace. That's music to my ears. Thank you so much. (laughs) And thank you for joining. Um, It's a really interesting topic and it's become urgent almost overnight, which is it was probably urgent before, but it's on the forefront of being urgent now. Um, So appreciate you taking the time and sharing your expertise with us and with our guests. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. And I hope that I will get to chat with you again. Thanks for listening to Data Unchained, powered by Hammerspace. To learn more, visit hammerspace.com. If you have a guest you would like to hear on the show, email me at molly at hammerspace.com. Hammerspace.com.